and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Michael Croslin. What a remarkable man. If you have not listened to that episode, please go back and listen after this. Today, we are having a conversation with another incredible man, Matty Hurrigan. He's well known around our local community of Armidale, and he is so brave for coming forwards today to talk to me. As you'll start to notice, each episode is uniquely different, and I always try to let you know what the episode is about so that you can work out if it is something that is right for you today, or perhaps it's an episode that you wish to skip. This week, Maddie and I will be discussing the heartbreaking topic of suicide in depth. He tells us the story of losing his dad a few years ago. We talk about the early warning signs, what you can do if you're concerned about someone, and most importantly, we discuss what you can say to someone if you are worried. Maddie and I both say a few times throughout this episode, as hard as the conversation is today, it is a lot harder not being able to have it tomorrow. I jumped on and looked at some statistics on the Lifeline website. Nine Australians die every day by suicide. That is more than double the road toll. 75% of those who take their life are male. 65,000 Australians make a suicide attempt each year. And suicide is the leading cause of death for Australians between the ages of 15 and 44. And that is the very reason why Maddie and I are here having this conversation today. As hard as it is to hear, we need to be informed on how we can do our part to try and help reduce this horrific number and statistics in Australia. Maddie talks about some of the strategies he's used to navigate his way through loss and grief. You can imagine how hard this conversation would have been for his family. I want to acknowledge everyone that has lost someone to suicide. Okay, Iran, I'd love to introduce you to Maddie. Thank you for coming on the show, Maddie. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. All our guests, when they come on, my favourite question to ask is, if you were to use an animal to describe you, what animal would that be and why? So, I actually knew this question was coming. Um, I did a little bit of research last night because I'm not a huge animal person um, and I've come up with a lion, actually. A um, couple of reasons. I'm not like the big alpha aggressive animal. No, not at all. all. That's, that's not the reason at all. But um, I found out they're actually one of the most social animals and I'm a very, very social person. And then they protect their pride. I'm a very protective person of the people that I love, those close to me. Yeah. Do you know, yeah. lion is one of those animals that you think, like everyone thinks about a lion differently. Whenever I've spoken to anyone about a lion, some people see them as a predator. Some people see yeah. them as like the king. Some people see them as this cuddly, gorgeous you know, soft animal. It's so different for everyone. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I think, I suppose the social side is probably the main reason because that was, um, I guess, a characteristic that I wanted to be portrayed in my animal. And then when it yeah. came across the protective side, yeah, that was, that's certainly structural. As well. Have you always been social or is this something you've grown into as an adult? Um, no, I was actually quite a recluse as a kid. Like I was yeah, quite a shy kid. 
I guess mum's beautiful mum that she was she sort of kept me in the little bubble being the firstborn and that sort of stuff and then I yeah I sort of grew my wings as I got a bit older and yeah very social now though. For anyone listening because that's not that uncommon what helped you grow your wings in that space because you are really social. People that haven't met Maddie, he works at Sports Power downtown and like you walk in and there's this massive smile and sometimes I just come in during the day, right, just yeah. to have a chat to you. I'm like, hey, Maddie, and then you're not there. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to go into an- some find someone else, but you're like my go-to when I need a break from work because I want to have yeah. a yarn. But um, yeah. what helped you grow your wings in that space? I can't think of anything in particular. I think it's just age. Like as you start getting a little bit older, you get exposed to a few more sort of social circles and people and, yeah, I just – I, I then found that I, I do enjoy people, so yeah, that's. Yeah, do you get nervous like. going into any kind of conversations or going into like um, parties or areas where you're going to be lots of people and you don't know them? Uh, I wouldn't say I do. No, I certainly used to as a, as a child. Like I used to, I used to cry on the first day of term every every single mm. time that I went back to school, and then now, yeah, I thrive on it. I love it. I'm really curious about this and I know this isn't what the podcast is about, but I'm going to ask one more question (laughs) because most people are sort of outgoing as kids and stay outgoing. Like they're people, people, and they're really boisterous. It's not as common to be shy as a kid and to feel nervous about going on the first day and then being a real social butterfly. Do you remember when it started to change or was it a gradual change? It probably is just through practice, having conversations and and getting a, a, going from a small circle of friends because I I had a small circle, I suppose, at preschool, and then when you go to primary school, your circle sort of branches out and being exposed to a few different personalities. Mm, mm. And the other question I really love to ask, Maddie, is is there a place or a room when you were growing up that was your favourite place? Um, I'm going to say my bedroom. I I didn't spend a whole lot of time inside as a kid. I was very much an outdoors kid playing with the neighbours and when the lights were on, like when the street lights were on, you're inside and having dinner and whatnot, but, yeah, my bedroom, I'll probably touch on why down further in this podcast. Yeah. yeah. It's an interesting question when you ask that around I think nearly everyone I've had on the podcast has said out they're outdoorsy people, so I'm starting to wonder am I attracting people on the podcast that spent more time outdoors <laughs> or because our kids now spend heaps of time indoors and it's really making me think and wonder and get curious about have we lost that? You know, in this day and age, have we lost it? Because I think everyone I've spoken to is like, oh, I'd prefer to say outdoors, but if I have to pick a room, it's X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's the times we live in, there's so much technology and things at our fingertips. And yeah, I, I still like with, I've got a four year old daughter and I do encourage her to get outside as often as I can, but she'd rather be watching Bluey half the time. It's like, no, get outside yeah. and jump on the trampoline or. Yeah, and we set rules, um, I don't know if rules are the right word, but guide frames in our house and we change it according to what's going on. But at the moment for our girls, it's there's no TV during the week, but you can watch two movies on the weekend so that they know it's coming and they can do it. They can watch movies or they can jump on their computer and do some research or whatever it is. But during the week, because we found that my girls are a bit older than yours, they're my eldest is in just started high school and the other two aren't far behind. And there's been a big shift now in that they need to do homework and they've got extracurricular activities and we get home and it's like if you're trying to fit TV in as well, it's just not available. So we say to them, go outside, go play for an hour, an hour and a half, go play with all your animals, come back in, let's have dinner, let's get your homework done, let's do all your music practice. 
and go to bed. And that was a shift for their mindset as well, because they were used to just watching like 10 or 20 minutes at night to wind down. And now we're like, no, we actually don't need that to wind down. Let's wind down in other ways. And we've had to be really strict as parents, but also they've had to really come on board as well. Like we had the discussion with them at a dinner table around, this is why we're thinking about doing what we're doing, what would work for you. This is what we're thinking as parents. So, you know, it's having that conversation with our kids as well and bringing them in so they've got that buy-in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think open honest conversations in every facet of life need to happen. So I think we're going to be talking about that a lot today. Yeah, probably once or twice it might be brought up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And Maddie, what's happening in your world at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Making a little bit of a shift. So last year, the year before, I enrolled in a crypto trading course based on technical analysis and yeah, so trading in and out of what altcoins and Bitcoin and reading charts. So what that entails is so you you sign up to a course, they teach you from the absolute bare minimum. They they start down. I went in knowing absolutely zero about about crypto or I just knew that there was an opportunity to make a lot of money and, and change some lives along the way. So what we do, we get we go into the charts because I'm just reading a graph. It's basically what I'm doing. So it, when I say technical analysis, I read the candles and they all represent the price, where price is going, where it's going to, where we anticipate based on probability price is going to go. Ah, I get it. And then yeah. from there, what is like your role? Do you then go and like trade money or do you? Yeah. yeah. So I can I can make money going up and when the market's going up, I can make money going down so I can short the market. So I just buy in or sell shorts. And then based ah. on probability, yeah, so basically it's based on probability. I work out where price is going to go. And then like you only have to have like a 50, 60% strike rate at certain ratios and you make money, you can have a 20% strike rate of your ratios at one point. So, Maddie, what got you into that? Well, I was actually introduced to crypto in 2017 by one of my really good mates. And like everyone else, I made a fair bit of money in a short time, thought this is absolutely ridiculously easy. Um, and then... At the peak of the 2017 market, I watched all my money go to the bottom like an idiot, basically. And so for a few years, I sat on the sidelines and I, I just didn't do anything. And and then in 2020, I actually saw one too many success stories. And I thought, look, I, I know how what I need to do. I, I've got this opportunity in front of me. I need to grab this thing with both hands. And so yeah, that, now that's what I'm doing. And for someone listening that this has spiked their interest and they're like, I've been wondering about that and how I get into that, what would be their step if they want to know more about it or they want to do a course? If they want to do a course, I'll put a link up and then they can follow that. There'll be some introduction videos and that sort of stuff that they can look into. But yeah, just do some research. There's there's plenty of opportunities out there. There's plenty of courses. If you don't want to do the one that I'm involved in, there's, there's other opportunities. There's uh, people that you can follow on YouTube. Can people come and work with you around this? Like what's your job going to be at the end of this? Are you just doing this for yourself and your family or do you help other people do it like a stockbroker helps people buy shares? Uh, no, no, it's not so much a stockbroker. So my role, if I help people, which is what I obviously love to do as a person, but I can introduce people into this course and then my role from there, I, I can, you get a small kickback from introducing people to the course um, yep. But they will then become their own independent trader. So I'm not doing it to sign people up at all. I, I, I'm doing it because I want to become a trader. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's just a little side bonus, really. And such a swing to the left from what you've been doing, right? 100%. Like, how long have you been yeah. at Sports Power? I've been there since I was 21. So, yeah, just 10, 11 years. 
Oh, I have tried to get Maddie across to my gym. I cannot tell you how many times I like regularly go in and be like, Hey, so do you want to do some training? (laughs) You know, to come in as a trainer, I would love to have you work for me. And you're always like, Oh, I know this person's just come to town. I'm like, Nope, I'm actually not interested in anyone else. (laughs) And now we've lost you to trading. (laughs) Lost you to trading. And I've got the little gym set up at home. I've got a few clients in there as well. So So you're still doing some PT? Yeah, still doing some PT as well. Yeah, which is awesome. And so how do people get in touch with you about the PT? Uh, with PT, just reach out, yeah. Just reach out. I'm happy to look into it. I've got limited spots at the moment. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But spots do come up and I know yeah, sure. locally yeah. we don't have a lot of PTs in town so there's yeah. Yeah, where people sure. are always looking and we're often quite full, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And it's a private little studio. There's no other person in the gym so that's probably a little bit of a niche, I guess, in, in regards to my little setup at home. Yeah, and you're so experienced yeah. in the industry. Let's just talk about that for a few moments. So you yeah. you started at CrossFit, didn't you? Yeah, I started doing my Cert 3 and 4 in fitness whilst training a little bit at CrossFit. I'm a Cert 1 and Level 2 CrossFit instructor. And, yeah, been in the industry for yeah, 10 years as well. Yeah, and very good at what you do. Very good Thank at you what you do. Thank you very much. <laughs> right, back at you. <laughs> Um, that's not what we're here to chat about today. Today is one of those really big, challenging, raw conversations. You and I had a conversation the other day about your dad, Scott, who committed suicide a few years ago, and we were talking about how we want to have a bigger impact in the world. We want to help people that are going through it. We want to help loved ones that have lost people to suicide. And this is this is one of those conversations that's really hard to have, and it takes a lot of courage and guts to even come on and talk about it. So I was just wondering if you were able to start at the beginning for you around your dad. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll say first off that I don't know the exact chronological order of how things happened. I was quite young when I first found out that dad had depression and was suffering with mental health issues. Basically, I'll tell the story as I recall it and the facts are definitely all all true. So I think I was maybe 10 or 11 when I first found out that dad had depression mum sat the three of us kids down and tears in her eyes and just said like your your dad's in he was in um it's called the clark center so he'd just been admitted and yeah he's suffering with severe depression and going through the counselors and yeah it was just a whirlwind an absolute whirlwind as as a young child I, i didn't really know how to attack it i'd never dealt with mental health issues at any stage of my life with anyone that i'd known that was close to me and yeah, so it was a little bit of a shock and it took a little bit of getting used to, especially as a family. I remember going to see Dad at, at the Clark Centre and your dad's like your big, strong, like he's your hero, you know, and I, and I still saw him as that and at no point did I, I see it as a weakness, he saw it as a weakness, but at no point did I, myself or any of my family see it as a weakness. But I did see a level of vulnerability in my father that I hadn't seen before and it, I just wanted to, even as a 10-year-old, just grab him and cuddle him and just, you know, like hold him with like, going to be okay you know yeah that's when it sort of started at that age I'm thinking back timeline wise that's about 30 years not giving away your age but you know <laughs> there wasn't <laughs> 20 years 20 years <laughs> but there wasn't <laughs> it still wasn't spoken about right and especially no, not amongst not, the male no, community no, not at all. Not, yeah. so what did you do with that information like was there help for you did you just have to kind of buckle up your seatbelt and trudge on or what was it like for you as a 10 year old uh, there wasn't a whole lot of information that we, we 
got given as children. I, I remember sitting down, I think we might have got a book and reading about like, this is what depression is and we're just like, yeah, right, like, what do we do with that? And I suppose initially we were sort of treading on eggshells around him because we didn't, we didn't know how to react. And I, I guess it was sort of on-the-job learning. Like There's nothing better than on-the-job learning, I think. So yeah, as a family, we sort of knuckled down and, and got through some, some rough periods. Um, Mum and Dad, they had a few issues going on at the time, which like, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a factor, but it probably maybe that's part of the reason why they're having issues with Dad's mental health. And, yeah, so like going back to the bedroom when I said that was my favourite room in the house and, but prior to all this, it, it was my favourite room in the house. But at this stage, Dad was actually sharing the room with me. And so that, Dad and I, it was like people see it as like father-son sharing room. It wasn't that at all. It was like two best mates and I was just a mate oh. helping out another mate. Yeah, it was really, really like it was a shit time, a really shit time, but yeah, it was a special time too. I, like, we had some really, really long conversations for a yes. lot of years. Yeah. I that brings tears to my eyes just even thinking about that because when you, it's like a sleepover with your friends when you get to talk yeah. into all hours of the night and it's when those really magical deep conversations happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, how so long did you share a room for? I honestly am not sure. Like it was probably on and off for a sort of eighteen months. And Dad and I, yeah, we, we became we were always very close. And people say your dad's your best mate, but. I literally, I've got a tattoo on my hip, joined at the hip, and Dad had it on his other hip. We were literally, yeah, we were best mates, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what did the next few years look like for you? The next few years we were dealing with Dad's mental health. There, was, there wasn't time, I'll bring it up quickly, but I received a phone call from Dad and he was just like not in a good frame of mind, like bawling his eyes out and had no idea what was going on. I think I might have been 11 or 12 at this stage. And I was like, Dad, like, where, where are you? Like, I just need to come and see you. And obviously, the family's freaking out. had no idea. And I ended up talking my dad out of a tree that night. They were like that 12 years old. I'm like, come on, like, we need to sort this out. And yeah, so then he was admitted again. And, yeah, back around the loop we went. Yeah, but after that, and because I just knew that I had such a strong bond with him and I could get him out of any situation, and people say it's a lot of pressure to put on a kid. I, I thrive on it, I, honestly. And I've been to see counsellors and whatnot since, and they say, like, you're the protector. And it's probably as a result of all of this, for sure. But that's the space that I enjoy. I, I like to care for the people that I love and, and protect them. And, Do you know, Matt, that's a very interesting conversation because that was my experience as a kid as well. I grew up in um, a violent home and I was the protector for my mom and my family and I actually thrived off that, like you're saying. And I remember we've had conversations as adults and my mom says, you know, you shouldn't have done that. That was a lot of responsibility for the kid. I'm like, the best day I had was when I helped you leave and get out. And, you know, it's that... I am in my happy place when I'm helping and yep. that's kind of what you're saying. And I said yeah, this to 100%. someone, a mum the other day, she was saying she was so worried about her daughter. She's got a really chronic illness, the mum. She's yep. like, my daughter's caring. I'm like, allow her to do what she wants to do to be with you. Like they, your kids want to be with you. Your kids want to protect you. It's not an ideal situation, but it's, it is the situation. Yeah, for sure. You can't change yeah. it. It is no, what it is. It is what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, Make lemons out of lemonade and away we go. Let's knuckle down and let's let's get to work. Yeah. Yeah. And And did you talk to your friends during this time about it or was it kind of behind closed doors? No, not at all. No, Dad didn't like to talk about it. So it was just like, yeah, it was all hush hush. And I suppose times were different, as you say, back then. So, yeah, we didn't speak about it too much as a family. I think some of our close family friends knew, but yeah, not too many. 
And did you talk it about it as your immediate family? Like was it conversations that were had inside your four walls? Not so much, no. Not as much as I would, knowing what we know now, certainly not as much as what we'd like to. Yeah. yeah. And then what kind of happened after that? Like what was your experience over the next sort of five to ten years? Yeah, so then mum and dad ended up splitting up when I was about 16 or when I was 16. Dad, he was at a, in a good mental space like leading up to that, they were okay. And, yeah, so I was basically it was always in the back of your mind like you got to check in on dad, make sure he's going okay, but there was no admissions or there was no... There was no big issues at that in for a period of time. So Dad and I, we spent a lot of time in that period, right up until he, him and Mum split, and then even post that. And we would just go, we'd do things together, go fishing. The two boys down on the river, we had some pretty deep conversations. Uh, the amount of times that I made him promise me that he would never, ever do and put us through what he had. And that he could know that he could trust me and always reach out to me. And uh, we, we, had, we were honestly, like, as I say, we were joined at the hip and those conversations were, they were at that stage. So I believed him that he wouldn't go on to do anything silly in the future. And if he had those thoughts that he would reach out. But unfortunately, in 2015, he didn't get to that point. Mm. And do you want to tell us a little bit about 2015, like the lead up into it? And yep. we don't need to go into detail around what actually happened, but just for you, your experience through that time. Yep. So at the beginning of 2015, Dad was remarried. They had split up as well. I remember taking Dad down early in 2015 down to Coffs Harbour and walking into his room and he was just a, a mess. Like He was just a ball crying on the bed and I was like, like what's going on? He just, he was sort of going back to where he'd been in the past and I just, I cuddled him. I was with my sisters and my partner at the time and some friends and I just said, look, you guys go out, I'm going to stay here with Dad. And we, I just hugged Dad for four or five hours one night down in Kosaba and he was just crying. And Anyway, so I did my usual, I protected him, I built him back up and so we started to get a little bit of help uh, when we got back to town. And then I still remember, it was the 16th of August, we just finished our rugby season. Dad was out with us that weekend at the pub, having a good time. And I had no inclination that anything was off at all. And then on the 17th, I got a phone call saying that Dad was missing. So we went into panic mode, as we had done previously. And I got into, Dad was living by himself at that time. I got into his house, got the keys, went in there with my sister, and Dad had a note sitting on the bench. And, yes, yeah, still remember what it said to this day. I was like, I'm sorry for everyone that I've hurt. And I, I love you all so, so much. And, yeah, we checked his phone. And, yeah, the last thing in his search history was how to tie a noose. And from there it was just like the next two days were just absolutely, it was, we were in a spin. I, I can tell you exactly what happened, but I don't know how it happened. Like it was just an absolute mess. So we had police searching for him. Like we were driving around to all the usual spots that we think we thought we could, we might find him. We had, I couldn't tell you how many people from our local community, like friends, family, hundreds of us looking for him. So that was on the Monday. And then on the Tuesday, we still hadn't found him. We'd reached out to Lockie Onslow, who owns Fleet Helicopters, an absolutely amazing man. And I said, look, there's a lot of different spots down the McClay River where we go fishing that I would like to check. I said, we just can't get to them all. He said, well, look, 
I don't really have a pilot. I don't have a helicopter. He's like, I, I don't know what you want me to do. I was like, mate, just I, like we're desperate, like times of the essence, you know. I really, really would like to get down there. He's like, look, live with me. And he was going to take me so I could point out the different spots. And he just grabbed another crew member. He said, look, I, I don't want Matt in the helicopter sort of thing because in case we come across something that we don't want to see. And, um, well, we don't want Matt to see. So, yeah, he's an amazing man. We were going to pay him, but he wouldn't accept a dollar for it. Like he's just, yeah, yeah, can't thank him enough. And he's one of the thousands that we, we need to thank. But yeah, it was amazing. So from that point where there was a sighting in Dorigo, and that was that afternoon, I was already halfway down the big hill because I was in a car ready to drive to wherever they found Dad. But I knew that I needed to be the person to find him because, yeah, I could help him. And um, I got the phone call when we were halfway down the big hill that there had been a sighting in Dorigo. I flew back to Dorigo, rang a mate who was down in Coffs Harbour. By the time I got down there, I had no clothes or anything like that. It was 9 or 10 o'clock at night, but two days later. And I just crashed out. I was burnt out. And got up the next morning, it's like, well, where do we go now? Like, I mean, Costa, do I head towards Kempsey? Do I head towards Grafton? Like, I have no idea where Dad's gone. He's like, he'd, he'd already attempted the night before in a motel room with gas bottles and stuff like that. And did you know that? Yeah, we, we found that out that he had attempted. And then it was, yeah, it was pretty heavy stuff. And I remember I was parked at the Big Banana in the car park, just going, do I go right or left? Like, this is needle in a haystack sort of stuff. And yeah, that's when I got the call from the police saying that they'd, they'd found him, unfortunately. I am so sorry, Maddie. Like, yeah, you know, just listening to your story and hearing it, like my heart is breaking because for so many reasons, suicide is so complicated at the best of times, yeah, but having true. a couple of days of searching and that fear of knowing how serious it's going to be or could be and not knowing where to look, like I can't even imagine how that was for you over those few days? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was pretty heavy. I'm talking about it now and it is a little bit confronting, I guess, but I, I don't allow myself to spend too much time in that space. It's there. Mm-hmm. It's part of who I am, absolutely. But, yeah, there's nothing great comes from spending too much time in that space for me mentally. No. And so it's one of the questions that I have around grief when it's so complicated. Like what was it like for you afterwards? Like, was the grief overwhelming at the start and started to settle? Did it come in waves? Was there all different emotions? Like what were those next few months to year like for you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There's a range of emotions that I went through and our family went through, but I guess it was just like you go through the what ifs and then you have the anger and then it's just yeah, obviously the complete sadness and trying to work out how I, how you go on with life without your, your dad and, and yeah, it's, it's very, very tough, tough 12 months. Fortunately, I have a great circle of friends and family and like, yeah, without the support that I had, I wouldn't be where I am today for sure or be the person that I am today. But yeah, I, I put it down to basically the, the people that I surround myself with. It's certainly what's helped me get through that one for sure. Yeah. And were there moments, a lot of people talk about with grief that the initial moments are, you know, you're busy, you're in logistics, you've got to get stuff done, you're trying to find out the why, and then the funeral happens and then the world goes on but your life is still frozen. Yeah, yeah. So I remember actually and it's, it was a great bit of advice that I got on the day of Dad's funeral and that we were sitting at the wake and a good friend of mine came up to me and he just said, look, he said, mate, after tomorrow, he said, everyone gets back on with their life when they have to, he said. 
but that's when your life actually begins and you're trying to work out how to how do you get on with it with life as normal as you can without your father he said and in those days post the funeral when you get down you ring me and i was like that's really really good advice and actually every time i have a close friend or something that loses their their father or their mother or something like that i send them that message as well because it, it is it's it's that post funeral that's when that's when life really kicks in because it's a whirlwind up until the day yeah, and one of the questions a lot of people ask, and I know it happened in our community when this happened for you, was people didn't know what to say. You know, they didn't Absolutely. know what to say yeah. when they saw you. So yeah. what yeah. would you say to someone that's wondering about that? Like what can they say because they can't change it? No, exactly right. And there's, there's honestly there's not much that anyone can say. Um, just be there and, and just be a bit of support. People just need the support. Like They know that you love them like regardless of what's happened. But I can't say that there's any advice that I can say, and that's because it's different. Like individuals are all different. We respond differently. But, yeah, there's no one thing that you can say that's going to help someone. But just if they know that you're there, that's all that you can really do, I believe. And was it helpful for you when people actually named it, as in when they said, I'm sorry, Maddie? Was that helpful or was it helpful when people just pretended nothing had happened, like for you personally? For me personally, it wasn't up to other people. I think a big part of my healing and how I've come so far is I'm so open and honest. Like I, I talk about it regularly and I did from, pretty much from the get-go and with the with those closest to me. So at no stage have I ever been one to like keep it within and deal with it all myself. Like I'm happy to talk. I, I don't talk to absolutely everyone about it, but I've got my circle that I do entrust with with those conversations and that, that's what's helped me. And did you find it hard because of the stigma of suicide? Did that make it harder for you to talk about? Um, I didn't actually struggle with the stigma, to be honest with you. I know that there is a stigma attached to it, but it is what it is. Basically, we need to get comfortable with having those uncomfortable conversations, I believe, yeah. Mm, and that's what we discussed going into this episode that we wanted to dive a little deeper in is about having yep. those uncomfortable conversations. And that's probably going to yep. take us back to before it actually happened. Yeah, so sure. what are yep. some of the conversations that you wish you had or that you now in hindsight look back? Because it's very easy once we look back, isn't it? It's like yep. we can start to see these things. I lost a lot of friends through suicide growing up and yep. it's amazing after when you look back. But at the time, they were not there. You know, you're living yeah, your absolutely. life in every yeah, day absolutely. and it's yep, so easy yep. to miss them. Yep. I suppose there isn't too much, like in reflection, there isn't too much that I could have done. Like I'm grateful for the extra time that we got. Like it, we could have lost him years before. But I know that I did absolutely everything that I could. He just didn't want to be found. Like his phone was there, his note was there. Like he was, he, he'd checked out, unfortunately. So there wasn't too much more that I could do. There was no signs. Like I didn't miss too much. And a big thing is like the what ifs. And again, I don't spend too much time in the what if space because it's, it's not healthy for me as, as a person either. Did you though? Did you catch yourself being in the what ifs when it, when it happened? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. And I still do to this day. Like you still, like you, you, you go there. We're human. We, we go to the what ifs, but you don't allow yourself to spend too much time in that space. And how do you not allow yourself to do that, Maddie? Because I know one of the reasons we're having this conversation is for others that are going through it. So, yeah, for sure. you know, it's yep. easy for us to say, don't yep. spend time in what ifs, but how do you yep. not? What do you do? Okay, so I've got a few different mechanisms that, and over the years speaking to different various counsellors and that sort of stuff that I, that I use and different tools. I've got one which is a breathing technique, dropping the anchor when I'm overwhelmed or my head's in a space where I don't want it to be. I literally just go, I drop everything and I just I do the breathing technique and it's 
absolutely amazing. And when you say you do the breathing technique, the anchor is symbolic. So as in, in your head, you say, I need to drop the anchor. So I need to pause. Yeah. So and it, it's an amazing technique that's helped me so many times. So you close your eyes, you, you breathe heavily in through the nose, out through the mouth five times. And then you open your eyes and then you notice five different things around the room while still breathing. So yeah. And then close your eyes again notice five different sounds and even in complete silence there are five sounds you'll be amazed at what you can hear when you're doing that and then the next step of the process is you close your eyes still closing your eyes breathing heavily you say this to yourself i'm slowing down i'm calming down i'm in a safe place i'm grounded and you'll feel yourself actually sink into the chair into the bed wherever you are and then this is the visualization part of the technique is when you actually say, I'm not going to stop the ship, but I'm going to steady the ship. And you just picture whatever you picture, waves in the ocean, the ship slowly dropping the anchor all the way down to the bottom and then it just slowly starts to level out. That's a fabulous technique. I have yeah, not heard done. it described that way. Yeah, it's and I love the anchor drop because there's yep. really – it is symbolic, right? Absolutely. Whereas I often yeah. talk to people about, you know, five things you can see, five things you can hear, but that anchor drop is almost like pause. Yeah. Find the gap. It's not stopping the shit. It's just settling it. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. you said you had a few techniques. Is there some others up your sleeve? Yeah. So big one because we all get caught up in our own thoughts and like sometimes you might not want to speak to someone about it. So just write them down. You write them down. You can write for an hour, throw it in the bin once you're done. But once you actually get it out, then you'll feel a whole lot better. And I, as I said, I speak to my circle pretty regularly and I do a lot of work just in, in conversation. Yeah. And that's one thing I've really observed in you, Maddie, is when we have our conversations, there's never, I never feel like you're holding back. Like you're always, you have the conversation, you have it often. And like you said, it doesn't have to be verbal. It can be private. It can be written, but it's about getting it from your head out. So it just isn't going around and around and around. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Don't keep it within. You got to get it out. Yeah. And um, these are really good techniques. Have you got more? (laughs) Um, now that we've got you here I promise we'll go back to the conversation but you know this is what people they I I hear this so often they're like but how you know we all hear the this is what we should but how do we actually do it was there any Um, techniques that you used during that initial grief period I hadn't done a whole lot of work at that stage so other than relying on my circle yeah there wasn't a whole lot of techniques that I used and when you say a whole lot of work what do you mean by a whole lot of work like working with counsellors and working on myself sort of stuff. With the counsellors, Maddie, did you try a few different counsellors? Did you go Absolutely. to a grief counsellor? How did you go from thinking that you might want to see someone or did someone tell you to go and see someone? Like what happened in that moment? It was more of like there's been a few different times over the years where I'm just I, I know when I'm not right mentally and I just need like, well, if your car's not running right, you go for a little tune-up. So the same thing in yourself. If you're not running right mentally or physically, you need to – put in some actions to make some changes. So, yeah, I've gone to several different counsellors and like I would say to those out there, if you're not happy with your counsellor, go shopping. Like you wouldn't take it back to a mechanic that didn't fix the problem. So like if you don't find the right one and it's an interaction from human to human, so you're never, ever going to get on with absolutely everyone. So you find the right one that matches you. Who's right for you this month may not be right for you next month as well is the other important thing. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, and it's a journey. So once you uncover it, one thing within yourself, you, and then you get comfortable in that scenario, then you, you might want to dig a little deeper and that, that person might not be right for the next step. 
And did you know straight away, I say to people, give it one to three sessions and you'll know. You pretty much mm. know first session though, don't you think? Would you agree one with that? One or two. Yeah, one or two, maybe the second, but. You've already made up your mind in the first, you're just reaffirming it in the second. Yeah, and the beautiful thing about counsellors, people may not realise this, is you can actually just call their secretary and say you're not coming back if it's not the right person. So you're not married to the relationship. Not at all. Yeah, and how did you find counsellors? Because that's a common question I get asked. Um, I just went through the doctors and they referred who they went to, or not who they went to, but who they recommended at that stage. And then just word of mouth, once you actually start having honest conversations with people, you'll find that there's a lot of people out there that are using counsellors and then they might have a positive story that with this counsellor, then you'll go and try it yourself, you know. Mm. And I really love we're having this conversation because there's not a lot of men that talk about going to counsellors and it is so important. I love the analogy you gave about the fuel. You know, you would not go on a long trip without filling up the car and having it checked, tyres checked, pumped. Like it is, it's about dipping in and out, dipping in and out. I did two years of therapy to help get through my trauma and it was intense over two years. I mean, hours upon hours of therapy. And then every now and then I might float back in and just dip in for six weeks or dip in for 12 weeks or dip in for three sessions you know I think I often think about athletes and an athlete would not train without a coach yet we expect ourselves to go through life without coaches and mentors and supervisors and counselors yeah and as you know life not always kind so yeah you need those people to rely on Yeah. Yeah. And Maddie, I know we haven't gone into the difficult conversations and that's something that's really close to your heart. So when you think about people having more conversations, what do you mean by that? Because I've heard you say that through this episode, but I hear you say that all the time. Uh, So basically I want people to, well, not I want people to, but people should be comfortable in asking their their friends, their family, even the strangers down the street, like, how are you going? And yeah, good things. Actually ask them and trying to find out and as I said earlier, like get comfortable with asking uncomfortable questions. Like you, you don't know all the time because some people are good at masking it, but I reckon 80% of the time you can tell if someone's not quite right and I would probably say 95% of the time people don't actually challenge it any further and just accept it, what they say. Yeah, yeah. And I think it comes from a fear-based perspective for individuals, time-based or fear-based. Either they don't have enough time to go into the conversation right now, it's not the right place or the right time, or it's fear-based. What if they give me an answer I can't handle? Yeah, I guess it's exposure as well. Like if people haven't had those conversations before, they can be confronting. But as I I say, get comfortable with being uncomfortable. A tough conversation now is is so much better than having to go through what my family and thousands and millions of others have had to go through. Yeah, and that's the moment right there when you say that. That's where the penny drops. It's like this tough conversation, as tough as it is for you right now in this moment, it's not as tough as losing them. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, I can't remember exactly how it was worded, but I've seen a quote where it's like, I'd rather have a difficult and honest conversation rather than listen to your eulogy. Yeah. Yep. And that is, that is a really, really important point for, I think if people only take that part of this conversation away, we're going to change lives and impact yeah, lives so. across Australia yeah. and around the world. That's the plan. Yeah. Yeah. One person yeah. at a time, just removing that stigma. And we have come a long way in, in a short time, but there's still a long way to go for sure. And Maddie, some of the questions that I recommend people ask is you talked about how are you? That's a great question to ask, but it's that next question again, isn't it? It's like, you know, sometimes I say to people, how are you really? And I look them in the eyes as opposed to just that off the cuff. How? 
You know that? <laughs> <laughs> Maddie gets this regularly. It's like, so Maddie, stare in the eyes. How are you really? <laughs> but from, I guess from the receiving end, do you feel like I'm genuinely asking you and that I really want to know how you are? And that's why we have open and honest conversations because you actually ask the question and want to know the answer. Yeah. And just by that, it opens those doors. Yeah. Yes. And so that everyone's aware, we have this in the shop in the moment. Like, you know, it's not, you don't have to wait for the privacy. You don't have to wait until all the ducks line up. You can't wait. Don't wait. Have the conversation. If something doesn't look right, if you don't feel like it is, or if you just want to check in, just ask. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And the other questions that I think are really important, if you do think someone is struggling, there's a few things you can ask. You can say to them, what have you tried? Who have you contacted? Who have you told? Have you had any conversations about this? You know, you just kind of get the curiosity of a child. You can ask some really pointed questions. So, and please do not be afraid to ask these. You can say to someone, are you suicidal? Have you had thoughts of killing yourself? Have you had thoughts of self-harm? If someone says yes, my next question usually is, have you got a plan? Because if they can tell you how they're going to do it, that is red zone. You need to get help. You need to stay with that person and you need to call someone, whether that be an ambulance, a support person, a friend, you need to bring someone else in. You don't have to be responsible in that moment as well, which I think a lot of people think they are. Call people in. 100%. Yeah. I've been in that situation with a mate before and he rang me and he was ready to end it all, like throwing himself in front of the car. And I was like, look, this is not right. I found him, rang the ambulance. I'm like, this is our, this is where we are. And like, you you do not leave their side. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And never promise to keep it a secret. That someone might say to you, please don't tell anyone. My answer to that every time is, I don't know if I can do that or not. If I'm worried about you and I'm worried about you harming yourself or someone else, I can't keep that a secret. And you don't want me to keep that a secret is what I say. So there's a few other little points here that I think about is also encourage them not to have any drugs and alcohol because that amplifies it significantly. If someone is already in that mind frame, we don't want them to go and make it worse and to blow it up. So definitely not encouraging drugs and alcohol, which is what we often do in Australia, particularly it's like, let's go have a beer. Let's go have a beer and have a chat about that. (laughs) It's probably the worst thing we can do for them. Get a cup of tea. Yeah. Cup of tea, glass of water, go for a walk, get some fresh air on the skin. Reassure them that things can get better. You you can be honest in the space and say, I don't know what to do here. You can say that. I don't know how this is going to look, but I know that life doesn't stay the same. Absolutely. How you feel right now, you cannot physically, mentally, spiritually stay the same in three months. You're not going to be where you are right now. We are going to move the dial. So let's find out how we move that dial for you. Yeah. So I guess in that, like suicide is a permanent solution to a very temporary problem. If you want to go down the path and do the work, that problem can be fixed and will be fixed if you surround yourself with the right people and reach out to the right services. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely achievable. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think we've got this message across, but one of the other ones is take it seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's very serious, absolutely, as we all know. Like if you look at the statistics, it's ridiculous how many people that we lose to suicide each day. Yeah. I did try and look up the statistics before this conversation and it is hard sometimes, especially with COVID at the moment, the statistics are changing and the statistics were quite old. So I will try and find that for the end of the episode or to give it to people. But yeah, I did try and find those and couldn't, couldn't get them. So Maddie, one of the questions I haven't asked that's really sitting there for me as I listen to you tell your story is around you, 
around you as the boy that was the protector and that has come up a lot. I've heard you say, that's my role, that's who I was, that's who I identify as being and a lot of people that have a parent with a mental illness steps into that space and I'm wondering for you whether that still sits there today and how you've managed that part you know, around being the protector and losing your dad and then how do you deal with that? Yeah, well, it was pretty tough, I guess. I was like, you don't want to call them a project, but when you put a lot of time and energy and love into this person and and that guy gets ripped away from you, it, it was pretty hard to swallow. I just had to realise that I did absolutely everything that I could in my power. I, I, as I said, I don't spend time in too much time in the what-if space. And I know that the bond that Dad and I shared was very absolutely very special and uh, there, there wasn't too much more that I could do. I guess after losing that, the next step as the protector role was I had two younger sisters and I was always very protective of them but I was the man of the house now and yeah, I, I just really got into looking after them, making sure they were okay. We have open and honest conversations. I was looking after mum. And as a family, we've sort of united. We were always very, very close, but yeah, it brought us all together just a little bit more. And yeah, like the open, honest conversations and being that protector role within the family. Do you find that that is your greatest strength and your greatest weakness? 100%, yeah. I've done a lot of work with counsellors. They said like, basically, you don't need to be the protector all the time. And it's an admirable quality, but it, yeah, it can be a weakness and can drain you as a person too. So, so how do you, when you notice that it's pulling you under, so when it's your strength and you step into that space, it's an it's an awesome personality trait to have, right? Like because you Absolutely. know you yeah, know that sure. it's a very comfortable yeah. feeling for you. Yeah. You can step into yeah. that light and be like, I'm here and I've got you, yeah. Yeah. and I'm comfortable here. But what about when it's unresourceful for you? How do you manage that? Uh, going back to my my tools and my mechanisms, I've got a couple of really close mates that I'm just like, look, I'm getting a little bit overwhelmed. We're more open, I think, as a as a whole, like this day and age, and. People, I, I find people come to me quite regularly and like my friends and family are just like, you're like, the, you're like a counsellor, you just don't get paid for it sort of thing. So I, I try not to take on too much of their problems and I'm always a voice of reason and support. Yeah, Maddie, you're talking about everyone else again. You're talking about being yeah. the protector again. How yeah. do you protect you? How yeah, do you yeah. protect you when your protector part is out into the world <laughs> and you're vulnerable? This is and it's session. <laughs> Yeah, it is another session. You signed up for this, mate. You signed up for this. So you can't reverse out of this conversation now. No, but seriously, and I know I keep bringing it back and I know I'm chunking it down, but I'm doing this because this is what the listeners keep asking me about. It's like the how. It's the how, right? It's the, yep. it's the strategies and the tools. So when you find that that protector part is big and at large and it's not working for you for whatever reason, for yep. whatever reason, there's times that it's great and there's times that it's unhelpful, Yep. How do you step back from that space? Have you got tools or have you not worked it out yet? And that is okay if you haven't worked it out yet. I know when it's becoming overwhelming, absolutely. Like, How do you know? You can feel it within. Like, you, It's mm. just like building up. It's an energy, I guess. It's it's not a thing. It's an energy. So you can feel your energy really, oh yeah, it, I don't know. It's just an energy, I guess. It's all I can You can see it, that's Maddie. You're like stepping up. You're like his yeah, shoulders like, yeah. are lifting, his yeah, chest is it. lifting. You can yeah. see it physically in you. Absolutely, yeah. So it, as you say, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. But when it becomes too much on you as an individual, I, my big thing is exercise. I Honestly, I'll just go for a run. I've got the gym at my wheel like right out the back. I just smash myself in the gym, problem solved. And if that's not enough, then yeah, I'll go and reach out and have a chat to a mate. 
got some really, really yeah. close mates that helped me through that stuff as well. And it's no surprise that Maddie and I are saying to do exercise, um, being two PTs. <laughs> However, there is so much research, like it is there's overwhelming amount of research about the benefits that exercise can do. And when we say exercise, it doesn't mean you need to go to the gym for an hour. It doesn't mean you need to go and like lift really heavy weights. It's about moving your body in a way that feels good, whether it's outdoors or indoors and finding something that's comfortable for you. You Even just going for a walk for 10 minutes totally counts as exercise, right? 100%. Yeah, I had a rough day yesterday and I was just like, I've got the podcast tomorrow. I've got to sort my head out. Uh, 10 minutes before dinner, we were getting Indian delivered. And I was like, I'm going for a 2K run. Zip around the block, come back, eat dinner, clear it. Yeah, there's nothing better. And while we've got you on this topic, I did not discuss this with you. So just, you know, putting full honesty out there. Maddie, what's your tip for someone that's thinking about starting training? <laughs> you know, let's just loop that around. Like someone out there that's listening to this and they're like, yeah, it's easy for you to say to go do it. You guys exercise every day. How do you start? Like what's your go-to for people? Do it. Absolutely. Just do it. Like it, it's the Nike slogan, do it. Like you, you cannot wait for tomorrow. You, there's no perfect time like now. Get off your bum, go for a walk, start slow if you need to start slow. But, yeah, absolutely, just get into doing any physical activity. You'll be amazed at the results that you get mentally, not just physical. Like, it's not just physical. The mental side is, I, I believe, outweighs the physical. Well, and that's what has drawn us together so much, right? Like we yeah, often have sure. that conversation. Yeah. And Maddie, what is someone or something in your world that truly makes you belly laugh? Like, I mean, I can hear you laughing from up the street kind of belly laugh. I'm not going to name any names because it'll give them a big head, but I do have some mates of mine that are they're pretty Don't funny. Guys. Do it. Do it. <laughs> I want you to no, name no. them. Come on. Give, it a, <laughs> give them up because we uh, all want to know them as well. Come on, give them up. Oh, Billy Ray Hyde. He's pretty funny. He's he's. You know, Billy Hyde at the council. Yes. Yeah, he's a unit. He's probably he's one of the blokes that comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, and it's great, isn't it? Because as soon as we start talking about it, the sm- our smiles have gotten bigger <laughs> and it just lifts the mood right away. So, so I love asking this question. You can't, no matter what we've been talking about today, we have been having heavy and deep conversations, but even just, just having this laugh, you know, and that's something you can ask your people if you need to, when you've kind of had a tough conversation, maybe not about suicide, but just a tough conversation about challenges in their life or feeling anxious or feeling a bit down. You can have, ask them who in your world makes you belly laugh. Like we went from slump to like straight up, right? Yeah. Change their focus, shift their focus. That's it's the same as the breathing technique. If you, if you shift the focus from where you're focused to where you want to be, Yeah, it's amazing. Mm, Thank you so much from my heart, Maddie, to get on here and have this conversation, like just for anyone to have the conversation, but for a man to step up and to be really honest, like I just want to jump through and give you the biggest cuddle. Thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. Yeah, I, I can't thank you enough. What an important and hard conversation to have. Thank you to Maddie and his family for being so brave and to stand up and share their story to help others. When someone you know appears suicidal, you might not know what to say and you might not know what to do. This is where if we can learn the early warning signs, if we can learn what questions to ask and how to get help, we can start to save lives. It can be incredibly uncomfortable and upsetting when someone you know says that they're contemplating suicide or even self-harm. You might not be sure of what action to take and you might be concerned that it's going to make the situation worse, but taking action is always the best choice. 
You can ask people questions like, what's going on? How are you coping at the moment? Have you thought about suicide or self-harm? Have you got a plan? Do you have access to what you need for your plan? Asking these questions will not make the situation worse. You might also start to notice signs in people you know. Perhaps something just seems off or maybe they're having mood swings, changing up their routine, engaging in risky behavior. Maybe they're withdrawing from life and social settings or giving away their belongings or getting their affairs in order. If you notice any of these signs, have the conversation, ask the questions. Don't encourage any alcohol or drug use and talk to them about helpline numbers like Lifeline 131114. They can seek professional help or you can talk to a family member. But most importantly, please take it seriously. You are not responsible for someone else taking their life, but your intervention may get them the help they need to stay safe. If you're listening to this episode and you want to talk to someone, please reach out to Lifeline or seek professional help today. Know that you are not alone and you have a whole community wrapped around you. Thank you everyone for today's episode and I look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.